Good morning. It's a wonderful, wonderful day to rejoice in. Praise God that uh, He's given us another day that we may look to Him. Amen. Indeed, indeed, dear saints, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Do you feel it? And it has somewhat to do with our message this morning in Isaiah. What a wonderful book Isaiah it is. Isaiah is a wonderful book. His name means to save, salvation. God is salvation. Isaiah is a wonderful book because it's full of gospel promises. But not only is it full of gospel promises, it's actually filled of a lot of warnings. Warnings. And something we need to pay attention to as we are traversing our way through this world. This particular book was written eight centuries before the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This book contains 66 chapters, just like the book we call the Bible has 66 books in it. It was often referred to as a miniature Bible in and of itself by theologians, and it was also referred to the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Isaiah by St. Augustine, that African preacher. When we look at these passages, let us consider what we sang, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. It's all in our hearts to be prone to leave God, especially in the trials that are so sore and vexing, we think that somehow getting out of the trial and leaving God is going to help us. But nothing could be further from the truth. Those who have been Christians for some time, I'm sure, can relate to those words. The book of Isaiah is full of warning. As I mentioned, he opens up by stating that there was a vision that he received. And without visions, people perish. And if there's anything that I desire from my heart to your heart today, is that you would have a vision of Christ Jesus. For having a vision of Christ Jesus, you will never be the same. You'll never be the same. His glory excels all earthly glory. He is wonderful. He is majestic. He's holy. And there's no reason in the world I should be struck down by a lightning bolt right now. But I trust God has given me a message to preach to you, the irresistible grace that he gives to his people. And if there's somebody here that has been wandering, as we heard, like a sheep astray, God in his mighty grace will come fetch you, put you in his handcuffs and pull you in to his love and his mercy. Indeed, the nation of Israel was a sinful nation. And Isaiah opens up the book in chapter 1, verse 2, by calling the heavens and the angels and the earth and everything that was created to pay attention as though it were a big, giant courtroom. 
to know that these people that were, as we've been studying with our pastor, have been exodused out of Egypt, brought into a land of milk and honey, and years go by and they forget the God that brought them out. And this is where we are prone. Do we forget the very God that has brought us out of our own captivities, our own trials, and our own tribulations? God is calling his people back. And he's also calling those who don't know him to come. Come to the place where everlasting life exists. Many were those who traveled and traversed the whole world looking for a fountain of life in some type of water that would benefit them to have eternal life and live like vampires. We look for a heaven and earth that's beyond this one, which will be created, that will have righteousness alone in it. All our tears will be wiped away. We'll be given new bodies. And if you feel your body, like I'm starting to feel now that I'm young, 49... You know what I'm talking about. But for you young people, I want to call to your attention as well that these people in our text had turned their back on God and therefore Isaiah is calling them back in our first verse 5. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, God is fair. God is fair. He's not unfair. He's not unjust. He calls people back to have a dialogue, to have a conversation, to look into what he has to say. Remember the prodigal of old that our Lord spoke about, that prodigal? He was a son of a rich man and he wanted his inheritance. You can put a female in there too, maybe your daughter. They have to be called back too. What caused that prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, to want to come back. Well, what caused him to want to leave? He wanted his independence. And the scary thing is, it's not the independence that we're seeing in Isaiah of earthly father and mother. It's the independence from God. And that's the scary thing. You cannot be independent from God. From the day you think you're independent from God is when all the trouble starts. It is the curiosity that Charles Haddon Spurgeon had mentioned, the curiosity of Mother Eve to taste the fruit of that tree which was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, and that's what came into this young man's heart. A sinful curiosity, what it would be like to be independent, what it would be like to be separated from his father who preached the gospel and understood God's sovereignty, And if you read that text, it's a wonderful text to contemplate if you're going through some of these things with your own children, that you can trust God, that he's going to deal with that child at his time and his way. And it is our prayer that they would feel that they would be out of gear with God, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it, out of gear. It's just not working right. I had my son the other day, and he was riding a bike, just a little bit bigger than him, and it was out of gear. And he was trying to go uphill, but it was so hard because it was in one of those lower gears. I said, if he just had the gear higher, it would be easier to go up that hill. But may you, if you are wandering or you know somebody who's wandering outside of the will of God, may you be found to be feeling out of gear 
with God. And that's what we're seeing in our text today in Isaiah chapter 2, this call. But before we go there, let us just do a few highlights to get to this point. Isaiah, in chapter 1, he calls this a sinful nation, a people of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. But God, in his mercy, always gives us the gospel and these warnings. Except the Lord of hosts, had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now, for the studious Bible thumper, we know that Sodom was burnt up. It was consumed. They were doing abominable things in Sodom and Gomorrah. And still, this Sodom and Gomorrah is following us throughout all of Scripture. We've been brought out of spiritual Sodom and Gomorrah. We've been brought out of Egypt. But let me tell you, Sodom and Gomorrah really isn't a physical place. Sodom and Gomorrah exist in your heart. By nature, we would all do those things which were done in Sodom and Gomorrah if we did not have the sovereign grace in our hearts, working in us to will and to do of His good pleasure as we work out these things with fear and trembling. This world has been turned upside down. It's just like it was back in Isaiah. There's nothing new under the sun. That which has been is and that which will be has been. There's nothing new under the sun. This evil has been following ever since the time of Mesopotamia. We've been running west. Here we are in California. You can go out to the coast 101 and jump off into the ocean and you're as far as we've gone. Unless you go to Hawaii. But this is it. We've been running for freedom to be able to worship God, to be able to understand that we have a blessing called the Bible, which they've been trying to take all throughout time. But here we are. This spiritual Sodom and Gomorrah follows us all of the days, and it's knocked on the church, and it's made itself into the church, and it's promoting its evil there. Men dressed up like women trying to claim a relationship with this holy God. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is happening in our day. These men dressed up as women are trying to promote sexuality with our youth. We need as churches to be the conscience of a society to say this is wrong, it's immoral, and it needs to be punished, and it will be punished. It will be punished. God gives us this. God is not slack according to his promise. He will fulfill the very things he said he would do. And so you better fear, you who do not trust in God or don't know him, that God is coming back in vengeance, not as the meek and lowly king who came to save sinners, but as judge to redeem his people, to bring them up into glory, that we would ourselves as saints judge the world. It talks about this sinful city called Zion, where the truth was placed. And Zion is promised that it shall be redeemed. See, there's two Israels in view here. There's national Israel, and then there's the true Israel. Remember, the call in our scripture in chapter 2, verse 5, is to Jacob. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and each one of those sons was a tribe, and they were part 
of that group of people that would carry the oracles of God so that we would have them today. And if you are truly born again, if you have truly experienced the work of grace, you have been circumcised in the heart. And it's not done with hands. It's not the male reproductive organ. It's the heart, that stony heart that's taken out, as we see in Ezekiel and those covenantal promises, that we would be given a heart of flesh. What is a heart of flesh? A heart of flesh feels its sinfulness. It feels how wicked and depraved it is by nature. That's the difference. We talked about this yesterday in a men's prayer group, that when we were in our sinful dead state, we didn't have any care about sin. We would bask in sin like we would uh, our own pools in our backyard, if you have one. Not thinking about God, not caring, no problem here, I'll do what I want. But God, when he comes and redeems with judgment, and he talks about her converts, the true Israel's converts, the true church of God, the converts with righteousness. We've been converted, we've been changed, we have a repentive heart. But there were those that despised this, what we called true peace that we see in Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he shall teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we see that these people, if we continue to read through chapter 1 to verse, uh, or chapter 6, you can see that Isaiah is calling out all these people, showing them, exposing them. God judges Judah and Jerusalem. You see the women in Jerusalem. They were dressed in uh, ways where they would have bells on their feet, so when they walked, they would be noticed. Um, Our pastor referenced to their butts hanging out. And that's what was going on. It was a very uh, sexualized time because they were hanging out with the Philistines, which had all these types of perversions in their culture. But as the church of God, we do not go with culture. We go counterculture to what is prescribed as being what is right. We call good evil now and, and evil good. It's all backwards. It's turned upside down. Did I get that right? Okay. So... These women of Jerusalem, uh, God calls them out. Uh, they wore these ornaments. They had rings and jewelry in their noses and all kinds of things that would just be flashy and make them stand out. But we're told of the future of Jerusalem, that God will save his people out of uh, Jerusalem. He talks about the parable of the vineyard and then the fate of the wicked. We know who the, the owner of that vineyard is. We see it all throughout the Bible, this vineyard has followed Noah all the way up into where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, had spoken about that vineyard and the grapes that would be um, used as the wine of the New Testament. We understand this vineyard as producing these grapes and put into a, a wine vat and it's pressed out and it's turned and cranked and we see our Lord, uh, he was suffering Uh, When he was praying for his people and out came blood, he was like that cluster, that blessed cluster of grapes where it was being wrenched down and wrenched down and even asked if this cup could pass from me, Lord, your will be done, though. 
it was like he was in the press enduring the wrath of God for us so that we can, as it will be next week, take partake of the communion, which is the blood that he shed for his people. That wonderful gospel wine, which does not give you a headache, doesn't make you drunk. It causes you to calm yourself and relax that all your sins have been paid for. And that is a blessing. We see the fate of the wicked. But one thing that we see with Isaiah is he does all these condemnational, that's a word, scriptures by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But yet he had to experience it himself. And when he saw the glory of the Lord in chapter 6, he said, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Whereas he just condemned them. If you read in chapter 1, they were full of sin from the crown of their head to the soles of their feet, nothing but putrefying sores. He's exposing all of the sin in Israel, but then he himself has to know as a preacher. And believe me, he had the silver-tongued gift of preaching. He was a great orator. He would stand before kings. He had four kings that he stood before, and even Manasseh, which it is said that he had, some scholars would say that he was sawn in half. Sawn in half. You read this in Hebrews chapter 11. He was sawn in half for the glory of God. And even Manasseh, if he did that, Manasseh repented. That's how wicked you can be, and yet God will save you from your sins. That you could saw Isaiah in half and be saved? How much more should you be trusting in the one that would save somebody who cut one of his prophets in half? But how much more are we guilty of cutting our Lord in half spiritually with our wickedness? Or did we put him on the cross? Sure we did. Did we spit on him? Yes, we did. Did we rip his garments off and put him naked on that pool and crucify him? Our sins did. And that's the glory of the gospel. Praise God. Dear saints, praise God. So if you are a prodigal and you are forsaking the teaching, we want you to find the truth. And we don't want you to gather the lies and the distortions that are in this world, for they will bring you down to hell. The fortune-telling that is going on in our day, churches that are perpetrating lies and becoming unequally yoked with this world that is causing many to fall. Isaiah said in one portion of Scripture that hell has opened up her mouth wide and there are many people falling in. That's why we desire to be sound in doctrine, fervent in charity, which is love and evangelically minded as a church. The last thing we would ever want is somebody to go to this place called hell. May we use that word with reverence. In our text, when he calls Jacob, we're all sons of Jacob. Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was a hustler. Jacob was us. He was a liar, too. But God had mercy on him. Praise God, he had mercy on him. This is a sinner's gospel, saints. It ain't for the righteous, those who are good within themselves. We talked about this yesterday as well. There's a great physician. He came for the sick. He came for the sick. Are you sick? Are you sick? Do you need the grace which heals the sick? 
Thank you, my dear brother. I think I'll take a sip of this. I told myself, how does the pastor go for an hour and a half? I don't know how I'm going to do that. But in the seriousness of things, it's a privilege and an honor for me to be here. And I just want to preach the truth, and I want to do it in sincerity. I don't want to be a fraud. There's nothing special about me. Maybe this shirt I got from Target last night. I'm just a nobody, but God is everybody. Christ is ahead, and we're the body. We have this holy tabernacle we exist in. That's why they call these the temples. You know, God is supposed to be in those temples, in the temple. So, we see in chapter 2, verse 10, or verse 5. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. What is the light of the, of the Lord? Did Isaiah know it? Sure he knew it. He knew David. He knew Psalm 119, verse 105. He knew that verse. The word uh, is a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So oftentimes we'll quote Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, and so forth. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. The way we see our path is by the word of God. It lights our feet so we won't stumble. We are not as those who are groping about in darkness. We have the word, which is the light. Remember John, um, the apostle in John chapter 3, verse 16. We're all familiar with that verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should trust in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But we know that this is the condemnation, that light, this word made flesh, Christ, the word made flesh, came into the world. Was it not the fourth day of creation when he said, let there be light? And there was light, and they saw this light, that it was good as the spirit was moving over the water, because that water was all darkness. It was a picture of our heart. And then when God said, let there be light, there was light. That was not the sun. That was the light. That was a Trinitarian concept that we understand as the triune God working out this whole thing called creation, this whole thing called salvation. We get salvation um, understanding when we read the first chapter of Genesis. It's where all the gospel seedbed is. We can derive so much gospel truth from that. But this is the light in which is, which is spoken about here, O house of Jacob, come ye. That's a command, to come. Come ye and let us walk in the light. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east, and their soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Let's, let's go forward in our outline here, turning back to the world. Remember, they were exodus out of Egypt. They had the, 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 um, the judges, and then they had the kings, and they were responsible for having the oracles of God. They were responsible for keeping the law, which all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, all the sacerdotal duties within the tabernacle pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifices pointed to Christ. So they had 
the responsibility of upholding these things which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a, what a responsibility that would be. And it's a great responsibility for the church today to be able to point to these things as they would point to Christ. We point to Christ as well. But Jesus, our Lord Jesus, said in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, that he has uh, no pleasure in those who would turn back. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And this was the transgression of many of those who were in this nation of Israel by turning back to the things of the world, to the shiny things. They had abandoned. They thrust it off. This people group, this Jacob, this tribe, these tribes, these 12 tribes, this was a horrible thing that took place that they would want and seek to satisfy themselves through the excess of worldly pleasure to the point of vomiting. When we read this particular verse here, verse 6, do not we have this in the church today? Is this happening here in our time? Is history actually repeating itself? Are we or anybody we might know that we care about forsaking the church, family, history, and teaching? In the book of Corinthians, remember Paul got his doctrine from the Old Testament. He got his teaching from the Old Testament. He would read over these things and it would teach him what he was to teach to us because that which they did back then is the very thing that was going on in Paul's day. It's the very thing that's going on in our day. When he says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, I'm going to use a, a different translation and it'll bring some sense and clarity. These things which were written aforetime, these are warning markers. So when we read this, that these people had forsaken the house of Jacob, they had forsaken what God had done. These are warning markers. They're, it's a danger. It's like the big sign that says danger. There's a cliff ahead. If you continue to go forward, you're going to fall off this cliff. But these are our history books. The Bible is 66 books, and these are historical books. It's his story. It's the unfolding of the uh, drama of redemption. And so these books would indicate there is danger if we do not pay attention to the things of the past. These are our history books. They're written down so that we don't make or repeat the mistakes that were aforetime. So we don't repeat the mistakes of that national Israel in the forsaking of God and his truth. Our positions in history are parallel with what's written in this scripture that we're reading today. They're at the beginning and we're at the end. And we are just as capable of messing it up 
as they were. So let us not be naive, let us not be self-confident, let us trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our understanding. Because you're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence, it's useless. But let us cultivate God's confidence. Many times they've mistaken my dear pastor Jesse as being arrogant. No, I know him. He's confident. There's a difference. And he's confident in God's word. That's the difference. You see, we also, every gospel preacher or anyone who would want to get up and tell people about the sins of a nation or the sins that people are doing will often be accused of being arrogant Nothing could be further from the truth. How many times I'm in my closet crying, crying for myself because of my wickedness, uh, crying for my loved ones, crying for those who are going through pain. This is the life of a gospel preacher. It's not something we uh, talk about a lot, but it is something that is true that we go through when God is using us as his under-shepherds. And thank God we have under-shepherds that would care to that point. Uh, Brother Mac over here, he was praying, and it brought me to to tears when he said, Lord, we want to do right. We desire to do right. I want to do right. But I find find a a law in my, my members warring against the law of my mind, trying to bring me into a captivity that says I'm just a mess and you should not go forward. But again, I will mention that the snail, as slow as it was, still made it into the ark. Thank you, Lord. Lord. If I have one arm and both my legs are missing... And this arm's not working. May I drag myself to Christ's feet. Lord is good. He's so good. But may we cultivate God's confidence as we hear these warnings in Scripture that the proud will be destroyed. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He will push. He will press, but never past your limit. And the reason for this is that he is purging you from the dross to make you as pure gold. And it's not a pleasant process sometimes. He'll always be there to help you to come through it. It is a biblical mandate when we hear, O house of Jacob, come ye. It is a biblical mandate for us to always uh, meet up in the church, to never neglect the gathering of the saints, that we wouldn't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And let me tell you, I'm telling you in all sobriety that the day is approaching when the lights will be turned out 
and you will not be able to call upon God. This is the reason for the mandate. Why would we gather together? And this is where they went wrong, saints. This is where we can go to the New Testament, learning what they had done wrong so that we would not make the same mistakes. So we were, we'll be without excuse when we hear these things. That Hebrews 3.13, we are to exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today means the, the sun came up. The sun came up. And when the sun comes up, there's new mercy. We are to run this race as though everything's left behind. We don't look back. We look forward to the mark of the high calling which is found in Christ Jesus. How are you going to get along with your wife for 29 years? you got to forget all those things which are behind. How are you going to get along with an angry child or a rebellious child, which we all are by nature and have been, by forgetting those things which are behind? All the sins that we've committed, forget them. They're gone. They've been forever cast into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west... There is no more sin. We have a jubilee, saints. A 50-year jubilee that exists for eternity, and it exists right now. All of our sins have been put away. Glory to God. There is no sin that shall separate us from the love of God. It is Christ that justifies us. We all have differing gifts for the benefit of others. And so I'm saying this, look. This is the text. This is where they went wrong. They went after the world. We don't want to do that. We have gifts here in the church, having then gifts differing according to the grace that has been given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in the proportion of our faith. If, or it's ministry, let us do it with ministry and if we're teaching, let us do it in teaching. If exhortation, let us exhort. He who gives, let him give liberally. He who leads, let him do it with diligence. He who shows mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. All these things are a benefit to the body. And we should love without hypocrisy. How do you do that? Well, if everyone's a hypocrite, it's easy to love one another. Because that's what we are by nature. We put on a good show here at church. We put on our good face. But we're not trying to be hypocrites. We're just trying to cover sin because we love one another. That's all we're doing. We love one another. We know we're sinners. We know that we fall short. But let us cling to that which is good. Let us abhor that which is evil. And so in our text, these uh, folks that would neglect the gathering of worship in the nation of Israel were finding and gathering lies that would distort the truth. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. What could be more abominable and more of a lie than ever before when they would have our children cut their body parts off to try and make them into something they weren't born as. And you want to tell me that judgment's not near? This is madness. Nature tells us, even nature, nature does not lie. God's nature does not lie. 
The whole world lies under the lap of the wicked one. We're dealing with a thief. He's been around ever since the beginning. His name is Satan. And he is out there to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's what was going on with what was happening in the Philistine Empire. And remember, as they were doing these things, and we hear the gospel promises in Isaiah, and we, we know we have so much wonderful passages of Scripture. Think of Isaiah 53, which clearly demonstrates Jesus Christ who would come, who is the arm of the Lord. Who shall the arm of the Lord be revealed? Has he been revealed to you? Who suffered for us? This thief, he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Do you have Christ? Christ has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Paul the Apostle told the Galatians, Grace be unto you and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. You see, Paul got his doctrine from reading the Old Testament. He spent 14 years reading the Old Testament to be able to write the things that he wrote. And so what we see in the world and what we see in false religion, as we see with the Philistines, uh, their land is full of silver, it's gold, it's got everything you could ever desire. Yet the nation of Israel, those who were unbelievers, wanted to be like them. Uh, They were given to fortune-telling, false prophets, making themselves unequally yoked together with the unbeliever. It's a no wonder that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He can come and look like he's God himself, but he is a deceiver. But we have the word of God, and that's why we say, is it written? And it is written. And if it's written, and there's something being contrary to that which is written, then it's not of God. There is a great apostasy, and this apostasy is taking place even in our generation we're living in, because the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. I had to pull out the iron today. I had to iron this shirt. I could not put my hand on it. I put it on for a second. I said, Ooh, if that was on for a moment, my hand would be seared. But if you can imagine that on your conscience and smoke coming up, and it, it's when something's bleeding. What do they call that? When they put something on that's bleeding, it stops the bleeding? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Cauterize. A cauterized conscience. Conscience that doesn't work anymore. Conscience seared with a hot iron. And that's the generation that we're seeing when we see the abominable things taking place in our hearts. But we see the warning in Scripture as our passage is telling us that they went after these things. And so it is today uh, that they would even forbid to marry, as we see in the Roman Catholic Church that has uh, caused many uh, ill things to come forth when they started to forbid men to marry. 
um, and committing to abstain from eating foods, which God created for us to eat all things with thanksgiving. We also see in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 14, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out. Because what we see here is that these Philistines, they work what would be called magic. It's trickery and signs and wonders. And we're seeing the same thing today. And that's what led these people to want to be a part of this Philistine culture. And we see it today. It's the same thing taking place. The spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So they were tempted and they were tried and they were left to wander. To wonder after these marvelous things that this... Uh, let's go back to our text here in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 2. Their land also is full, uh, full of silver and of gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. It's a wonder that you see these things. You can think about how tempting it is to follow after worldly treasure. So what I see here is what we see today, and I would say that it sums up to these three things. Bling, bling, women, and cars. That's what we're seeing here. Gold, silver, chariots, and treasures. We're also seeing the magic of their hands because they're hand also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. Technology. It went from megaliths, which are huge structures that were made to cause people to fall in awe and wonder of, which the Philistines did, big giant idols that made and had an appearance of some type of holiness that they would reverence and they would want to go watch these things because they were just so mega that, uh, I might get in trouble for that one, but they were so big that you would look at these things and be in awe and wonder. And so we went from megaliths to where we are today to the metaverse. So from megaliths to the metaverse, we are still fashioning idols, only the idols we're making today far exceed what they were doing back then because they're trying to create a reality that you can go into where these things actually move, where you can enter in to that reality. And this is what their own fingers have made. They are indeed the pirates of the new age seeking to steal the souls of our children by worshiping their metaverses and their social media TikToks and getting us to have our own daughters to want to be gold diggers when they should be gold digging for the truth of the gospel. So I was watching these TikToks, and I, I, I just wanted to see what was going on. And it was woman after woman after woman. A guy would have a car. And every time, 
This is where we are in society. Every time these women were dressed just like they was explained in Isaiah to get the attention of men, the guy would say, hey, would you like to go out and get something to eat? And she would say, I don't know you. And he would go start his car. He'd get in the car and the woman comes knocking on the door. (laughs) Hey, uh, is this your car? And it was the same mindset each time. And this is the shallowness of the church. This is the shallowness of the church. They just want to have a good ride. They want health, wealth, and prosperity without dealing with the real reality of a relationship with Christ. And that's where I'm seeing the connection here that these women are making. Bling, bling, women in cars, technology, megaliths to the metaverse is what we're seeing in our text here today. We see it throughout all of Scripture. Revelation tells us this. But what are we to do, saints, with all of this going on? I have a dear brother who gives me text all the time. We need to do something. We need to do something. We need to do something. Man, I want to do something. I, you know, I got a safe at home. What am I supposed to get everything out and be G.I. Joe and the American Hebrew and save everybody? It's not going to happen. What God would have us to do, and listen to me, saints, because everyone wants you to... Now, I'm not saying we, we don't go out and do exploits and expose the things of culture, but what I am saying is that we are to seek ye first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything we need. Everything we need. It's not just the clothes, the cars, and the house, and food. It's everything. It's the righteousness that we need. He's going to protect us. God is bigger than any megalith. He's bigger than any metaverse. And He's also more precious than any bling-bling. And His church is more lovely than any woman. And His chariots are the ones that will be coming that will bring judgment upon this world and protect us. We don't want to trust in any chariots of man. We don't want to put our trust in things that are fleeting and temporal. We want to seek for a kingdom that's outside of this kingdom. That was the whole book of Hebrews chapter 11, that they left the country to go seek for a country that was in heaven to meet their king, which was in a celestial city. His name is the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Riches and honor are with God. Enduring riches and righteousness. Faith in man's works. They would have faith in these things. The unbeliever. Faith that we could enter into a metaverse. It has been purported that children would go into this metaverse, forget to eat, and die on the couch. That's how bad it'll get. But let us continue to teach our children to fear the Lord. That's why we have the written word so that we can expose what is taking place in our world, that it's happened before, only this time it's climactic, it's worldwide. We do not want to have faith in man's works. People, uh, as we see here, the mean man, this is old English language, boweth down and the great man 
humbleth himself, therefore forgive them not. What it's saying is, so people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, do not forgive them. Now this is a hard statement to comprehend that God would actually not forgive people at a certain point once they become reprobate but they even too will bow the knee to Christ when he comes thus saith the Lord in Jeremiah you can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 5 and 6 Jeremiah that demolition prophet he was also a weeping prophet he was cast into dungeons and prison for telling the truth, but yet God gave him grace to be able to do it. He was promised eternal life when he was told, I knew you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. And we can take that promise to ourselves if you believe the gospel that God has known you, you've been on his mind from eternity past in the everlasting covenant. But cursed is the man that who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. And isn't that what we're seeing here? For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places. That's places without water, without the word, in the wilderness, in a salt land, which is not inhabited. We also see in Psalm 118, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put our confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord to put our confidence in princes. We're also told that there would be a time when God would say to Jeremiah, don't even pray for these people. Jeremiah, therefore, he says, in Jer- turn back to Jeremiah 11, verse 14. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up the cry of prayer or prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. These unbelieving, uncircumcised in heart, consciences being seared. We see throughout Scripture that these people do and have existed throughout all of time. One of the verses that really affected me early on in my Christian walk was Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 23. When God says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and he talks about how we are to seek after it with all of our hearts, that because he called and you refused, I've stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. Is this what we're seeing here with these proud Israelites that did not know God? He says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock When your fear cometh, when the fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, 
Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated the knowledge that he had provided and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of his counsel. They despised all of his reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall, say, shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso, now here, saints, whoso, whosoever, I love whosoever, whosoever will hearken unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Taken back to the rock of time. With all of that said, we see the holiness of God. We see that he will not let sin go unpunished. Sin is going to be and has been punished in two different places. Sin has been punished on the cross work of Christ. So that if you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... Alone, apart from any works, you have nothing to answer with your own sin to God. It's been put away. But if you do not, and you reject this judgment that took place some 2,000 years ago, there is a judgment, there is a wrath to come where all the wrath of God will be poured out on the unbeliever. Does that not give you some type of fear? to know that your soul will end up in a place of eternal torment. There is a place called hell. The church doesn't speak of it much these days. And that's why we have an important task to be able to plead with men, women, and children the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his mercy. And that is why we see in verse 10, to those who have ears to hear, to those who are the sheep, that hear the Savior's voice, the shepherd, the great shepherd, will hear these words, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. As our Lord would say in John chapter 12, verse 48, the very words that I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Now there's a rock and there's rocks. There are, there's a rock and there's rocks. So hear me out. Revelation chapter 6, you can turn there in your Bible. Here in our text, historically there was a rock. We saw this rock as our pastor is preaching out of Exodus Chapter 33, this rock has been following uh, the children of Israel all throughout this disposition of time, all the way to where we are now. But there are rocks, and you're either going to enter into the rock, or you're going to enter into the rocks. Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, it says, When God comes back, 
and he's judging the world on that great white throne of judgment. And ex- I don't even know how to put this in earthly words. Complete holiness is standing before you. Will you be so fearful that when the sky is receded as a scroll and then rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth and great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. This is not the same rock that is spoken about in our text. These are rocks, plural. This is a rock, singular, in our text. Because God has given a way of escape, a way to flee from the wrath of God by going into the rock of ages. And what do they say to these rocks? And they said unto the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is a suicide calling but you will not escape it is the soul which is eternal that god has made that will have to answer but how many times did god say come O house of jacob come let us walk in the light of the lord come let us reason together though your sins be as scarlet i'll make them white as snow let the wicked forsake his thoughts and the unrighteous man his ways Go to God. Even in John chapter 3, when we read, For God so loved the world, and we hear all the time that this is a universal atonement. No, it doesn't say that. It does not say it's a universal atonement. It's whosoever believes. And this is the condemnation. This is why this wrath is coming. Because men love darkness and not the light. So if that's the case, remain in the light. As uncomfortable as it may be stay there and your promise that every deed and every motive and every thing about you will be exposed and then placed in christ but you got to stay you got to stay stay yes they called on the rocks to fall on them to hide their hide themselves from the face of him we say Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. They say, have the rocks fall on us so we don't have to see his face. And did you know there's a little shining coming from your face if you believe the gospel because it radiates from him? That's why you experience persecution. I don't want to be part of that. I see this shininess on you. I'm not being mystical or anything, but it does happen. People get upset because you want to bring light, because you are light bearers. You're the light on a hill. You are the salt that preserves. You are the light of the world. So it shall be, remember Exodus. This is, the, this is another rock. This is the rock, singular, that's being called to those that will hear his voice in our text here. Enter into the rock, not rocks. And hide there in the dust. Why would he say hide there in the dust? He's calling you back in the text, exegesis, to the very dust that he made you from. 
to understand your finite being. We're dealing with God. You're either going to say, God will do what he wants to do. He's sovereign. I'm raising the white flag of surrender. I'm putting down my shotguns. I don't want to put my fist in his face anymore. He has shown me to be utterly sinful. I will bow down to the dust, just like John did on the island of Patmos when he saw the glory of God and he fell, as it were, a dead man to the dust. And he's calling us to dust because he's calling us to repentance, what we are for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. But we're hidden in a person because a rock represents somebody. And Moses wanted to see this glory. And let us ask God, show us your glory. Place us in the rock. And when Moses asked these things, he said, so it shall be while my glory passes that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Go to come in, to come, go in, go. This rock, it's a big rock, it's a cliff, it's a ledge and an edge where we can be sheltered and protected, where we can hide ourselves from the glory of God. Remember, our God is a consuming fire. No man hath seen the Father save, save him that was in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus Christ. If you've seen Christ by revelation, you have seen the Father. In this dust, and the Lord God, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living thing, a living being. And this is where we bow down to. This is where we're instructed to bow down in this dust. From the face, this terror, it's an alarm. This is the Lord, the proper name of the God of Israel. It's magnificent. It's a splendor. It's his majesty, his holiness, and his wonder. So let us enter into evangelical worship, knowing these things that we've been placed into Christ. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 32, When calamity comes, the wicked are brought down. But even in death, the righteous seek refuge in God, in the rock. We want to hide. We want to hide the gospel word. You are my hiding place in Psalm 32, 7. You will protect me from trouble. Do you ever call upon the name of the Lord and say these things? And surround me with songs of deliverance. In Psalm 19, verse 114, he says, You are my refuge and my shield. I put my hope in your word. In Psalm 27, verse 5, he says, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. In Isaiah chapter 32, in the same book we're in, he says, Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. 
So this rock has been following us all the way to where we are right now. This rock, this precious rock. Fear is definitely the beginning of wisdom. Even Job, the oldest book in all of Scripture said, and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Long ago, in the year 1775, there was a special hymn written by the Augustus Toplady, and he wrote this hymn, and he said in a gospel magazine that was being issued back then, Yet, if you fall, be humbled, but don't despair. Pray afresh to God, who is able to raise you up and to set you on your feet again. Look to the blood of the covenant and say to the Lord, from the depth of your heart, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Rock of ages. Do you know the rock of ages? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Rock of ages, do you know the rock of ages? Nothing in my heart do I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, When mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on your judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Now who is this rock? Who is this rock? Did I hear something? All right. (laughs) I hear Jesus is the rock. And how do we know this? How can we spiritualize this rock, into a metaphor making the rock Christ. How can we seal the deal here? Well, I believe in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the very rock of Hebron also was that rock that was smitten by Moses because the people complained and murmured and wanted to be watered with their thirst in their dry and parched land. And so we smit Christ ourselves through our own sin, and out came blood and water. But we know that he is the rock, and all drank from the same spiritual rock, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The same rock we see in our text enter into the rock, singular, which is Christ, And hide yourselves in the dust. 
from where you came from, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. Now I want to stretch a couple things here. We know that Christ is the rock. And what I found fascinating, this isn't in your notes, you can write it down. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Can you put that on the screen? As I was driving here, I was talking with my family, and we were looking up, uh, where does, what's the difference between a rock and a stone? And so my loved one, I'll say, she doesn't want me to mention her name, said, well, the difference is the rock contains minerals, and it's not as um, substantive, but out of rocks come stones, which is amazing. because, And it's through the process of time, time and energies, energy pushing the rock. We look at rocks and we say, how long is that rock then? It's been a long time. So if you go on YouTube and you say rocks, stones from rocks, they will break rocks and out comes of the rock comes these stones. They're very full of substance like ruby stones and gems and certain things that have formed over time that have a density and a hardness to them that time has produced. And I'll submit to you that out of this rock today, we have a stone and that stone is here in our text. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Well, that's verse 19. Yep, verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief corner stone. So out of a rock comes a stone. And, you know, the positioning of that stone for for the foundation of the apostles, which is the foundation of the church where the truth rests upon, um, we also, coming out of the rock, are made stones as well. But if you don't place that cornerstone in its proper place as the church, everything goes crooked. Now, I was studying the... Egyptian uh, pyramids, the Giza pyramids, that they go all the way up and they're these huge, massive granite stones and they think that aliens came in and lifted them up and put them there. We don't really know how they did it, but it's pretty amazing. Um, And not that I believe in aliens. Be careful because that's the next thing coming. That are so precisely put in place that had they been just a tiny bit off it would have offset the whole thing and these are massive stones so if you can imagine why christ is the chief cornerstone because if we don't build off that cornerstone and the apostles doctrine this thing will go to the left or to the right we want to go straight to god himself and so christ being that chief cornerstone Stones come from rocks. We ourselves are lively stones. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, verse 5. So we ourselves are brought out of the rock. We're given substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
So we've been given substance. We're like, we, you know, we're out of the rock. We have hardness, endure hardness as a good soldier. And we are the church. You also are lively stones built up a spiritual house and holy priest for, priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God that he is using you to make his church because you are part of that body called the church. Uh, Christ is a solid rock and I would want you to know him and when we draw our fleeting breath when our eyes shall close in death when we rise and soar to worlds unknown and see him on his judgment throne may we always remember he's been the rock of ages and in our text it's a gospel promise it's a gospel promise that if we enter in we shall be safe as we hide ourselves in Christ. Amen. Amen.